Well, if you have a Bible, we can uh, turn in it to Matthew 14. We'll look at verses 13 through 21 this morning. The text is also printed there in the bulletin on the next page. Um, So years ago, uh, before Jubilee, our youngest, was uh, in school, so probably four years old or something like that, uh, when it was nap time, sort of after lunch, she would curl up on the couch with a blanket and we would watch a cooking show a lot of the time. So there was this one show where the chef uh, would travel. Uh, it wasn't just him cooking out of his own kitchen, but he would travel to different places and see these different uh, kitchens and he'd offer his services, especially to help cater large meals for lots of people. And one time he visited an inner city church with a soup kitchen that regularly feeds hundreds of people like daily. <clears throat> and uh, the volunteers of the soup kitchen, they were all talking about how good it feels to serve the community. And the chef, who's the host of the show, he remarked, yeah, it's just like the parable of the loaves and fishes. And uh, I started to explain to Jubilee how the loaves and fishes is not just a parable, but it's a real historical miracle that, uh, that really happened, not just a story, nice story about how you can feel good about helping other people, uh, but she was already fast asleep by that point. So <laughs> uh, it, it's common to view this account of the feeding of this multitude of people as a a great story, a nice story to motivate you to share your lunch with other people, right? Uh, To undertake massive endeavors like opening up community uh, soup kitchens or whatever. You know, sort of the takeaway being, you know, God can take what little you have and multiply it in uh, surprising ways to help others. But it's really about much more than that. It also seems common just to take away the fact that Jesus is really powerful. Uh, That he can do anything, he can provide for your basic needs, sometimes even miraculously, and it's it's wonders that he works, right? So, but it's about much more than even that. Uh, This this account, all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all talk about this one miracle, this one uh, wondrous sign. Uh, It's the only one all of them talk about. And it is sort of, we could call it a living parable. It's, it's a real historical event. This thing really happened. But Jesus uses it to teach us something, like he uses his parables. And it's kind of mysterious what he's trying to teach us, like the parables are, right? Uh, he's teaching us something of larger significance about himself. And that's the way he uses his miracles, to teach us this thing. They're called signs, that's, they're called signs for a reason. The, the visible wonder of this miracle that Jesus does points beyond itself to something that's very real about God. Something very real about the invisible God is seen in these visible and wondrous signs. So this sign, <coughs> the feeding of the 5,000, or so it's labeled, <coughs> this sign reveals how Jesus Christ himself is more than enough for everyone, and it teaches us how we can help others find their satisfaction also in him. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Uh, Let me pray first, then we'll read the scripture. Father, you've made yourself known to us in the life of your son. So we pray this morning that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us for our life together with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. 
But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, it says, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. He, uh, He had just heard that Herod had taken the life of his cousin John. And so he was going out alone to this desolate place by himself, this deserted wilderness. We imagine uh, to grieve. doesn't say that, but he had heard of his cousin's death, and now he goes to be by himself for a while in a a deserted place. Uh, Maybe it isn't exactly a rocky, sandy wasteland like we think of deserts, you know, Um, 120 degrees and sand as far as the eye can see or whatever, but, you know, apparently there's grass for people to sit on. Uh, later, so we call it a, a remote place. It's a remote grassland. It's an empty place where no one lives. It's the kind of place where you might withdraw in solitude to grieve the death of a loved one, to pray, to reflect on your own mortality. Uh, of course, uh, Jesus doesn't even get a minute's rest to actually be by himself. The, the people follow him and they impose themselves upon him, they're demanding his attention. It says, when he went ashore. So he's on this boat to go to this remote place. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And if I were looking for solitude at a time like that, I would be frustrated. Uh, You know, just give me a break. I've done nothing but serve all day, every day. I've just heard of my cousin's death. Can't a guy get some peace and quiet, some rest, some personal care time? Don't I deserve that much? You know? But instead of being frustrated... By their real imposition on him, it says Jesus had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Uh, In Mark's account of this this event, in Mark chapter 6, it says that his compassion was evoked because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. So he's the good shepherd. The good shepherd cares for his sheep. He sees them. He knows them, and he is not irritated by them. He loves them, and he serves them. So he saw children and women and men. He saw the old. He saw the young. He saw single people. He saw married people and families. He saw all kinds of people who were struggling in this life, thousands of them, all with their own stories. He saw people who were 
untethered from God, who were untethered from reality because of their sin. He saw people who misunderstood him, but still wanted to be near him. He saw people who just didn't know where else to go. Jesus didn't set visiting hours. He didn't turn them away. He opened his life to them, and he laid down his life for them, like a good shepherd. He wasn't there for himself. He was there for them, like a good shepherd, present. He took care of them. He knew their ailments and healed them. He made them well, like a good shepherd. Even though the crowds uh, seemed mostly self-interested, following Jesus, uh, always following Jesus around because of the amazing things that Jesus can do for them, right? Uh, Maybe sort of insensitive to his own struggles here after the death of his cousin. Uh, Even though they seem mostly self-interested, he had compassion on them. Out there in the desolate place, they literally had nothing but Jesus. And it would turn out to be more than enough for everyone. They were about to have a lesson about the superabundant excess of God's love in Christ. Uh, toward the end of a long day here, uh, the disciples, you know, always want to be practical and do take care of the logistics, right? Suggest that uh, Jesus' work is done. His work is now done. The day is over. Crowds need to eat. Send them away. Right? They say, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. <clears throat> it's fine for them to be concerned about uh, things like this, and maybe they can't be blamed uh, for the way they, they can't anticipate what Jesus is going to do here. Uh, but Jesus' work was not done, and the crowds didn't need to leave his presence. Jesus says they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And I imagine Jesus saying uh, this with like a twinkle in his eye, right? You go ahead and take care of it, right? Um, he knows the disciples, they won't know what to do with that command. Uh, in John's account, in John chapter 6, <clears throat> it says that Jesus was testing them for he himself knew what he would do, right? So Jesus knows his disciples do not have what it takes to feed all these crowds, This is a setup. In fact, uh, we might say that the whole thing is a setup. The whole thing. God arranged for all those crowds to be meeting his son out there in the desert so that he could demonstrate the superabundant excess of his love. Just like so many years before when, <clears throat> when God had brought his people out of Egypt. You can read about this in the book of Exodus. He brought them out of Egypt, out into the wilderness, into a place where it was impossible to survive except for his presence and provision for them. And he brought them out there so that they would know him as their greatest need and know him as the one who provides for their needs. Right? So the people of Israel, who he had brought out of Egypt graciously, uh, they complained. They complained that now they're in this desert place and it's obvious to them that Yahweh has brought them out there to starve them to death. That's what they say. You're going to kill us through lack of food out here in the desert. At least back in the civilization of Egypt, you know, we had food to eat. 
Out there in the desolate places, they had nothing but Yahweh. And it proved to be more than enough for everyone. Quail fell out of the sky like dust from a dust storm. And God fed them with bread from heaven. Manna, they called it. That, that word uh, is related to, or sounds like, I guess, <clears throat> the Hebrew word um, for what? <laughs> like, what is it? Manna. What is this? Bread they did not know. Bread they did not understand. Impossible bread. Inconceivable bread that materialized out of nowhere every morning. On the ground. It was bread that came from God. It was bread for their life with God in the desert. God sustained the life of his people out there in those empty places. And it wasn't just a survival ration either. It was daily. They needed bread daily and they got bread as they needed it. But not just meager survival rations. They got as much as they could eat of bread and meat. It says in Psalm 78, which, uh, you know, we've looked at actually um, in connection with Matthew's gospel here over the last several weeks. If you've been following along, uh, it says in Psalm 78, man ate of the bread of the angels. God sent them food in abundance and they ate and were well filled. And now, now again here, centuries later, Jesus was with his people in the desolate places where there's nothing to eat. And he tells his disciples to feed them, all of them. Probably around 10,000 to 15,000 people total, right? Since, you know, the men alone numbered about 5,000, they would have been accompanied by just as many women and children at least. So the disciples are to feed a literal army. That's actually the significance of how this number of people is being counted and recorded, right? So all of the gospel writers record only the number of men, only the number of men, just like back in the book of Numbers when God's people are about to set out from Sinai Sinai in the wilderness to follow Yahweh into the promised land and to, to conquer it, to take it, right? So Moses was told to take a census of the men who were able to fight, the men who were able to go to war. These are just regular people. They're not trained soldiers. Their goal is not to take the land back through violence from the Roman Empire and make Israel great again. Their goal as those who follow the Lord is to know the Lord and to make him known. To spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord throughout the world. So these these here, these people, these crowds are in a sense the armies of the Lord. And the Lord is looking to provision them now. So he tells his disciples to give them what they need. But the disciples say, we only have five loaves here and two fish. So this is an absurd scenario. It's laughable. You know, if you're reading this and you get a chuckle, it's right. Uh, there's, there's not enough to go around. It's like saying, hey, go, go feed the city of Cornelius on your sack lunch. Uh, it's beyond overwhelming. It's unreal. It can't be serious. Jesus must be joking. But instead of laughing and saying, yeah, just kidding. Yeah, we don't have what they need. <clears throat> Send them away. Jesus says, give me the loaves and fishes and have everybody sit down on the grass. Right? So, like Psalm 23 says, Yahweh 
is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall lack for nothing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. So like a good shepherd, he takes care of the needs of his flock and he feeds them. He does this miraculous work that uh, reminds us of Elisha from our Old Testament reading that Bill read. Uh, Elisha himself, the prophet, uh, was uh, in a place where there was a famine in 2 Kings chapter 4. And it says, a man came bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley. John, in his gospel account of this feeding of the 5,000, says that Jesus fed the people with barley loaves. Right? So there's a strong connection here. <clears throat> uh, and this, this man brought fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah's, Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat, just like Jesus instructed his disciples. But his servant, uh, like his disciple, said, how can I set this before 100 men? Right? It's not enough, like the disciples comment to Jesus. So he repeated, give them to the men, they may eat. For thus says Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of Yahweh. So after the disciples here in our passage had distributed the food to the crowds, Matthew says, they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Jesus took what wouldn't have been enough for each person in that crowd to have a single crumb. And he made it more than enough for everyone to be filled with a surplus at the end that was far more than what they had even started with. Twelve baskets. And that's not just to say a lot of baskets. Right? Twelve baskets of leftovers were taken up. It's a number that as you read the scriptures, you find is a symbolic number. It represents the twelve tribes of Israel, the fullness of all of God's people. Right? So this is a picture of the superabundant, overflowing excess of God's love sustaining the life of all his people. How does Jesus do this? I mean, that should be a question that we ask. What is going on here? How, how is it possible for him to feed all these people? We wonder, what would that have even looked like? You know, how is this possible? What kind of power does he possess? <clears throat> Where does his power come from? How could he turn that little bit of food into such a great feast in the desert? Well, it's all there in this one little detail, uh, easily overlooked. We're so impressed by the dramatic magnitude of the miracle that we forgot to notice the most important bit. But if you pay very close attention, you see it there in verse 19. Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So <clears throat> Matthew says here that Jesus said a blessing as he looked to heaven, which is sort of the posture of prayer. Right? Uh, John's account says that Jesus gave thanks. Jesus prayed. That's what, that's what it says. Jesus prayed. Uh, in the youth group, we've been talking about prayer, <clears throat> specifically about the Lord's Prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. And each week, uh, we've been asking the young folks, what is prayer? I think it's slowly starting to sink in. 
What is prayer? Any of the kids? Any of the youth? Even paying attention at this point? It's all right. Prayer is living life with God. Just put it that way. It's very simple. Prayer is living life with God rather than apart from him. Prayer is living in a relationship with God. Prayer is bringing everything in your life into your relationship with God. Jesus prayed, which means that Jesus lived with God. And his prayer, his life with God, became more than enough for everyone. And what this means is that his relationship with the Father is the source of your life. That's what this is saying. It sounds familiar now, doesn't it? His relationship with the Father is the source of our life. If you've been around our church for a while, you've heard that um, Christianity is about Jesus before it's about us. It's about his relationship to God first and foremost. Jesus' life with God is the bread come from heaven to fill us. The Lord's own prayer of thanksgiving and blessing means life for us, for the world, for all his people. So the relationship of the Father and the Son is the superabundant, overflowing excess of divine love that sustains the life of all people. This relationship has been the source of the life of the world since the very beginning. It was out of the, the overflow of the love of the eternal Father and the eternally begotten Son that the world was made, that what was formless and void took shape and was filled with life. And this relationship between the Father and the Son, it means our creation, it also means our redemption. It means our eternal life with God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He's the eternally begotten Son, living as a human being, as a human. And this means that that relationship, that eternal relationship between Son and Father, that's the source of all life, He enjoys that relationship as one of us, as a human being. Jesus relates to God as the eternal Son relates to the Father. So He brings that relationship. He brings that to humanity in himself, in his own person. And he shares it with us freely as a gift to all who belong to him. It's because of his relationship with God that we're forgiven, that we're welcome in God's presence. It's because of his relationship with God that we are promised a resurrection like his, and glorified as children of God alongside of him. It's because of his relationship with God that we're filled with God's spirit, with all the fullness of God. Because of his relationship with God, we have relationship with God. That's what Christianity is. That's how it works. So the very connection of Jesus to the Father, the very kinship of Jesus with the Father. That is the gift of salvation to sinners who dwelt in death, in desolate places. That's the feast that sustains us in the desert of this world. His receiving from the Father 
with thanksgiving, his, his responding to the Father, that's our bread. Our satisfaction is not in earthly bread. Our satisfaction is in him, the bread of heaven. As the good shepherd makes his sheep to lie down in green pastures to feed, Jesus feeds us out of the overabundance of his perfect relationship with God. God arranges for us to meet his son in the empty, desolate places in life where we have nothing but Jesus. But in Jesus, through the spirit of his own union with the Father, we're satisfied. We have more than enough. We're filled to overflowing. Right? So it's obvious that Jesus didn't need what his disciples brought to the table. He doesn't need their meager resources, that little bit of bread and fish, you know, to be able to distribute to everybody. He's the one who brought forth the feast out of his own fullness. And it's it's obvious that the disciples, with their poor understanding of this, uh, what's going on, their, their little faith, weak faith, uh, they weren't really necessary for the, even the distribution of the meal, right? They're not really necessary. Jesus was blessing them, blessing his disciples, by incorporating them into what he was doing. He gave them the privilege of participating in providing bread for the life of the world. His life with God overflows through the lives of his disciples. He gives us the privilege of taking what he has provided in the superabundance of his relationship with the Father and feeding other people with it. So this isn't just a call to open a soup kitchen, as good as that may be, and please go do things like that. This is an invitation for you to share the bread of life with people who are struggling in the desolate places, with people who are untethered from God because of their sin, with people who wander as sheep without a shepherd and just don't know where else to go. The good shepherd has had compassion on you. Now you see, see others on whom he's had the same compassion. Take the relationship of the son and the father and feed them with it. He can multiply his salvation to the multitudes, even through us, Uh, with our poor understanding and our little faith. Jesus lives with God. Let's ask him to fill the world with the superabundant, overflowing excess of his love, because uh, in him there's more than enough for everyone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. And in your Son, you've given us your word. You've given us the true bread from heaven that sustains us. It's a strange bread that at first we might not even recognize. Teach us to hunger for this bread. Teach us how to eat this bread. Teach us how to share this bread with others. We pray that you would satisfy us in Christ and fill us to overflowing for the good of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We, uh, we call this various things. Uh, when we come to this point, in worship, uh, here it's printed, you know, it's the Lord's table, uh, the Lord's supper, communion. Uh, we also call it the Eucharist. That's a name for this sacrament that the church has used throughout the centuries, the millennia. Uh, the Eucharist. The Eucharist means thanksgiving. And uh, we call it that first and foremost because Jesus gave thanks to his Father. Uh, when he instituted the Lord's Supper. So it's not primarily about our thanksgiving. 
it becomes about our thanksgiving. Uh, but our thanksgiving is often weak and often just really actually non-existent. <laughs> you know, when you, you come uh, to any meal and you give thanks to God, how much of your heart really is in that, uh, that gratitude? Uh, I don't know, you know, for sinners. Um, it's a normal thing to have weak or non-existent gratitude in your hearts for God. But Jesus, Jesus thanks God. And when he instituted the Lord's Supper that night with his disciples, he thanked God for our salvation. He thanked God for our salvation through the gift of his own life. And this is our celebration here at this table of that gospel reality. If your salvation, if your life with God depended on you and how thankful you are, well, you'd be lost forever. You know that. But your salvation and your life with God depends entirely on Jesus, who went to the cross and who uttered the words, it is finished. So we do this in remembrance of him, in remembrance of his thanksgiving, in remembrance of his prayer, his life with God, his atonement on our behalf. So remember Jesus and entrust your life to him through faith, and all the benefits of his life with God will be yours forever. That's the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, we lift our hearts and our minds to heaven where Jesus is seated at your right hand. Your son prayed and gave this meal to us. This meal represents his relationship with you, given to us through his body and his blood. So we thank you because he thanked you on our behalf. We thank you for sending him for that very purpose. We thank you for his divinity and his humanity joined forever in one person. We thank you for the way that you have connected us to your son and made us your own sons and daughters through him. Renew us in the image of your son and make us good for the world as Jesus is good for the world. We pray in his name. Amen.